Road to Life. We love you. We're so glad to be back together on our podcast. We're here with Pastor Mike Shepline, and we're going to hear the message from Sunday where you can be inspired through the Word of God and maybe even a funny story. For more information, visit RoadToLifeChurch.com, and we'll see you next week. Let's jump in um, to, we've been in a series called, and we've, we've simply uh, titled it Legacy. And when you use the word legacy, it can be a really broad word in our life. What I have noticed is this, is normally the older people get, the more they begin to think about the term legacy in their life. But legacy, if you look it up, it simply means to leave or to hand down or to bequeath to somebody. And I know a lot of us, when we think about it, maybe a legacy is we only think of finances. But when you look at it, it is a really, really broad word, and it covers every area of our life. It's us leaving a residue of who we are as a person, and it kind of trans in. Yes, it can be finances, but it can also be other areas of our life. You know, I look at my upbringing, and I realize that my family left, I have a legacy that my family kind of imprinted on me being raised in their house, where I kind of see life that way, or I have aspirations, and it's my parents' legacy that was kind of subconsciously put on me, but when I think about it, the first one is that my my parents had a belief in God and a love for God, and that legacy passed on to me. I'm reminded of Timothy. Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy, and he said this, Timothy, I just want to let you know that the faith that is in you was first in your mother, and then it was in your grandmother before you ever got it. It was a legacy of faith, and Timothy was walking it out. You know, there's when you think about legacy, I mean, in, in our house, a legacy that was deposited in me was I was raised in a big family. I guarantee you it's bigger than any family you were raised in. Okay, I was raised in a big family, 16 kids. And so it was normal for us. And so when I got married, I had a conversation with Jill, and it went something like this. She was raised with two children, her and her brother. And my conversation was, she said, we were talking, and she said, well, how many kids do you want to have? And I said, seven. That's what I said. I want seven kids. And she looked at me, and she said, whatever you want, honey. How many of you know what I'm saying? Then after we got married and we had two kids, she said, it's four tops. And you know what I call that? I call that blackmail. How many of you know what I'm saying? It was... But it was a legacy that was deposited in me because of another legacy in our family is because of all of the kids. I will eat just about anything, and I will eat it fast. And you say, why? Because if you eat slow, you get less. How many of you know what I'm saying? And if it's 
good. My dad used to say at the dinner table, he would say, do you guys even taste your food? He would say that because he said, you guys just slam it. Well, it was because when you have a lot of kids, and I mean, when we were kids, it was like, I mean, we got steak like maybe once or twice a year. And we called the fat, the boys did, white meat. How many of you are with me on that? And we would turn to my sisters and we would say, are you going to eat your white meat? How many of you know what I'm saying? And they would just be like, you're gross. You're gross. But what it is, is it was a legacy. It was something that was deposited in me after my parents, my family are not there. And now it's part, it's a legacy thing within my life. And then there's legacy moments in our life where we have a moment, and many times we don't recognize a legacy moment in our life until afterwards, and we step back and we look and we say, oh my gosh, that person influenced this, which influenced this, which actually contributed to where I'm at right now. Legacy moment is when I first met Jill. I had no idea. I mean, I thought she was a hottie, but I had no idea that my what, that I was going to marry her. But here we are. We're 37 years later, four kids later, and it was a, it was a legacy moment. And it was something or someone that altered your life. But most of the time, whether it's in the Bible and you study it, legacy in the Bible, or in reading life, usually, not always, but usually uh, legacy moments occur when we don't recognize it, we don't see it, we don't spot it. I think of David. David came out of nowhere to be recognized by all Israel as the killer of Goliath, but what his dad did is his dad said, go bring some food to your brother, some bread and cheese. And when he went there, he heard Goliath, he responded and he killed Goliath. But who would have ever looked and thought that his dad telling him to go there was a legacy moment in his life. It was a moment that opened up a door. We see this over and over again. And today what I want to talk about is even a, a maybe shift a little bit is I want to talk about realigning legacy moments in our life. Just as real as God has legacy moments in our lives that place us on a track or on a course in our life, just as real as that, realigning moments, there are moments where we have gotten off track, we've maybe made a mistake or mistakes in our life, and he's wanting us to dust ourselves off and to get back up in our life. And we see this, if you have a hero in the Bible, you see a realigning legacy moments in their life where God would come to them and he would begin to serve them. Another way to say it could simply be getting back up legacy moments in our life, keeping all of the good that we learned in that season from that situation, but then equally letting go of the baggage and the limitational things that are going to hinder or hurt or limit my life in all that God has for it. Because whenever we make a mistake in our life or we get off of track in our life, realize we need to learn from it and hold on to some 
things that navigate, but we equally got to just let some stuff go. And if we don't let it go, then it limits what God has in our life. And so it's really just keeping all of the good and letting go of the stuff. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a guy by the name of, most of you have heard of him, Moses. And most people, when you bring up Moses, they only identify with his successes. They only identify with, oh, he's the guy that confronted Pharaoh. Oh, he's the guy that, you know, called the plagues. Oh, he's the guy, you know, that brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Oh, he's the guy that split the Red Sea. Oh, he's the guy that that God used to drown the entire hundreds of thousands of Egyptians, the army in the Red Sea. Oh, he's the guy that God used for the Ten Commandments. All of this is true, but they don't identify with Moses as missing it or a murderer or at a time in his life where he wanted to quit and not wanting to get back up in his life. And one thing I love about the Bible is God doesn't hide anything. How many of you, if you wrote a book about yourself, there would be some things you left out. How many of you are with me on that? I'll just leave that. I don't want that in there. God let, puts everything in the book. He puts everything in the book. And, and he lets us see it all. And what I love about Moses and the Israelites is it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that everything that was written about Moses and the Israelites was written for our example that we would learn from it, that we could grow through it. And so whenever we study someone like Moses, it's important that we don't cherry pick his story. Sometimes we've got a favorite hero in the Bible and we cherry pick him. We, we look and all we see is the stuff that we like. But what happens is, is we got to read the totality of their life and learn from their life. And if we don't, what I have noticed is we condemn ourselves and we think, oh, God can't relate to me because I've got this issue or I've made this mistake or I've been through this. When if you study, you find out they all did as well. You know, when you look at, at Moses, he's both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is just information, but he, he is mentioned in 19 books of the Old Testament, in 12 books in the New Testament, 31 books total in all. And then he, there is over 800 references to him in the Bible. And I want to just, um, we're, gonna, we're actually going to look at him today in what Stephen said about him in Acts chapter 7. But what I want to do is I want to just catch you up to what's transpiring so you can actually be in the driver's seat of his life. If you look at the story of Moses, you really have to go back to Joseph. Joseph was 400 years before Moses came around and that there was a famine that was coming in the land and Pharaoh had a dream. He didn't know what the dream meant and God um, raised up Joseph, sent him in. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream that there's a famine that's coming and you're going to have seven years of abundance and seven years of borderline starvation and famine in the land. And so, um, Mo and so Pharaoh looked at 
Joseph and basically said, there's nobody as smart as you. And he went in one day from a prison cell to be the prime minister of Egypt in a 24-hour period. And so Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. And what happens is, is as years go on, and Joseph sends for his family, which is 75 of them, to come from Canaan and to move into the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt. Well, as time goes on and Joseph passes away and his brothers pass away, is the children of Israel are multiplying like, like nothing the Egyptians have ever seen. And so what they begin to do is the first thing is it says that they forgot what Joseph had done. And so they, they enslave the Egyptians and they make them their slaves to basically build their cities and, and build their, their temples and build everything around. And that they're, Egypt is the most powerful uh, nation on the earth. And so they're enslaving them. And then they begin to realize, oh my gosh, the more that we, the more we enslave and, and the more that we... Um, place bondage and hardship on these people, they just multiply like rats. They're just having more and more kids. And so then they come up, the Pharaoh comes up, and he basically says, you know what we're going to do is we're going to kill all of the, of the boy babies that are born, and we're going to let the girl babies live. And so Moses is born into an environment where if you are born as a male, you are killed, and if you are a girl, you are left live. And, and that is the, that is the environment that he's born into. And so in verse Acts 7, verse 19 is about Pharaoh. It says, he shrewdly exploited our race and mistreated our fathers, forcing them to expose their male babies so that they would die. It was at this critical time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And for three months, he was nourished in his father's house. Then when he was set outside to die, Pharaoh's daughter rescued him and claimed him for herself and cared for him as her own son. Realize this, they hid Moses for three months. At three months, you can read the story in Exodus. They make a little uh, raft, little boat, and they put the baby Moses in it. And you can readily see, if you look at all the references, this is a plan. They float the little Moses downriver where they know that Pharaoh's daughter is going to be bathing. And they know, because you find out that one of them is a servant of Pharaoh's daughter, that she's looking for a kid. And so they float the baby down. She spots Mo, says, I want Mo. And then, and then Moses' sister runs over, gets Moses' mom to nurse the baby and raise the baby up until it doesn't need nursing anymore. How many of you know God is good? And so now what you see is there, it says verse 22. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom and the culture of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he reached the age of 40, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. Now realize this. Think about this for a moment. You say, well, how does he even know that he is an Israelite? Because as an Israelite, you are circumcised on the eighth day. 
And so Moses knows, okay, I'm different than everybody else. And they basically tell him, you are an Israelite. So he's been in this system of the best and the strongest leaders on the earth at that time, the brightest military minds, the people that know how to build things. He's educated. And at 40 years, he reaches 40 and it comes into his heart that he's going to visit his brothers at the sons of Israel. Verse 24. And when he saw one of them being treated unfairly, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking and killing the Egyptian. Let me just, just a thought. If killing people is part of your calling, I would venture to say you've missed it. How many of you know what I'm saying? Notice this all Moses knows. This is what he knows. So he kills this guy, and then look at what it says in verse 25. He expected his countrymen to understand that God was granting them freedom through him, assuming that they would accept him, but they did not understand. Then the next day he suddenly appeared, and two of them were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong one another? But the man who was injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Look at this statement. Moses, it's coming to his heart. God's going to use me. He pushes himself up, begins to tell people, Guess what, guys? I'm it. I'm going to get us out of here. They reject him and say, No, we don't, we don't want you. And then look at what it says. But the man injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away, saying, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this remark, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of a burning thorn bush. I want you to think about this. Moses is born 40 years in Pharaoh's house. Now he's fled 40 years in the backside of the desert in Midian. How old is Moses? 80. He hasn't even started with, how many of you think, probably should have started a little earlier. How many of you know what I'm saying? Moses was brought up in an Egyptian house. Then he overstepped, made a mistake, fled to the backside of the desert. We have no record of God ever speaking to him there for 40 years. He's in the backside of the desert. And it says that there's this burning bush appears and God didn't say anything. He just sees this bush burning and it's not consumed. So he thinks, I'm going to go check this out. Look at what it says. When Moses saw it, he was astonished at the sight. But as he went near to look more closely, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your, for, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground, worthy of reverence and respect. What I want you to notice is after all Moses went through, he maintained a reverence, and this is number one. 
He had a reverence for God, even though it hadn't gone how he thought. This is so huge in our lives. It starts here. He was a leader. He had a plan. His plan didn't go how he thought it should go. It's been 40 years since it happened. His whole life has been turned upside down, but he kept his reverence for God. He maintained a reverence for God. This affects everything in our life. Realize that when, we're, when we've made mistakes, when we thought it was going to go, when it hasn't gone, we must, the most important thing we've got to have is a reverence for God, a reverence for his word, a reverence for his, for his ways. Do I have a reverence and a high regard for God and his word, generally speaking, but especially when you stop and you look, when life hasn't gone how I think, is realize that a reverence for God is what keeps me sensitive and following him. But the moment that I lose a reverence for God, I treat his word like it's anybody else's opinion. We just take it like it's an opinion. Oh, that's God's suggestion. Oh, that's what God thinks. But I've got all of these other options. What I want you to notice is Moses had a reverence for God. If you look this up, what you find is the Bible talks about that if we have a reverence for God, we'll stay in life. Moses had a tough spot, but we, what we have to realize is a reverence for God is what keeps us going after him, trusting him. And when you look at a reverence for God, I like Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says this, the reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord is the beginning of and the principal and choice part of knowledge. Notice that when I learn something, the most important part of it is a reverence for God. Notice the word, the, it says that it's the principal and the choice part. Now I'm gonna communicate. How many of you are foodies? Let's just be honest, you're a foodie. When you think of like, when you think of like meat, steak, cow, what is like the absolute best cut? The choicest cut. He said the choice part. What is it? The, okay, we got, would everybody agree on the filet? Okay, we're not even going to shake our head. <laughs> I'll take the filet. How many of you are with me on that? He's, it's the, it, notice what he said. He said that when it comes to learning, the choicest part of learning is it should deposit a reverence in my heart toward God. I like to put it like this. Without a reverence for God, everything he says is hamburger helper. Okay, but when I have a reverence for God, realize this, when he says something, it's like, oh, this is the filet. Are you with me? This is the choicest part. Oh, this is the most important part. It's, he said that it's its starting point and its essence. But fools despise skillful and godly wisdom instruction. See, reverence for God is an attitude in my life. You can, we, I can be around people and you can just tell. You can just tell if they have a reverence for God. If they have a reverence for God, it doesn't matter where they're at. Realize this, God is going to bring them to a better place. No matter where, it doesn't matter if they're in a great place, God's going to bring them to a better place. 
Why? Because there's a reverence for him in their life. Number two is this, we see about Moses, is no mistake is final. Some of us sitting here today, you're looking, you say, I made this mistake. With God, no mistake's final. It's not over. It's not done. We just read Moses murdered. God directs him 40 years later. 40 years later. Think about that for a moment. He's been in this spot for 40 years. He's 80 years old. If you study his life, he thought it was over. At this encounter, God gave him a bunch of reasons, or Moses gave God a bunch of reasons why, oh, this is never going to work, God. You want me to go deliver him? It's never going to work. His first excuse is, I can't talk right. That was his first excuse. Do you remember what it says in um, verse 25 of Acts 7? It says that he was a man of power in words and deeds. That's what it says. He was a man, of, but he's just like, he's just been broken down. If you look, he said, they won't believe me. Now he's reciting to God his past. I failed before. They won't believe me. It won't work. God is, God is answering each one of these questions. Oh, it's been too long. Natural limitations in his life. I like something that the apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter three, verse 13. And he said this, he said, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it yet, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. See, we got to have a heart where we learn from our mistakes, but we look ahead. We don't, we don't sit in the mistakes. I would venture to say this, that we cannot forget our past unless we replace it with something that God says about us. We can't, we won't move past it. And a reverence for God causes me to stop and say, okay, I've been through this. Okay, I've had this mistake. Okay, there's been a whole bunch of pain there. And God is saying, realize that I want you to forget what is behind you. I want you to learn from it. But now it's time to get up and to move ahead. Satan tries to convince us based on our mistakes, our weaknesses, and our past that that is the way our future is going to be. But God comes in, and what I love about it, I mean, I, I, thought I, was, I thought about doing this, but I thought somebody might not like it, is if I find an 80-year-old person and him stand up. How many of you know what I'm saying? He'd just be like, some people would be like, oh, I can't believe you did that, so I'm not going to do it. Okay, but, but realize this in our life is no mistake is final. Number three is this, be faithful in what you know. Just be faithful in what you know. Be comfortable with small things. Sometimes in our lives, what happens is if some people only look for the big things and miss the significant things in their life. They're looking for the big. They're looking for this. And God is like, excuse me, but if you look in my word, I am a God who starts small. Look at the biggest redwood in the redwood forest. It started 
as a seed. Look at anything that has had that has had any lasting success. It started as an idea. It started as a seed. It started really, really small. And some people, what they do is they're not faithful where they're at because they're looking for something big. And God is saying, excuse me, if you're not faithful where you're at. And Jesus said this in Matthew 25. He said, if you're not faithful in the little and the small places, God is not going to bless you with much because he proves you in those small places. He works the stuff out so that we can be healthy in those places. Zechariah 4 says this, who with reason despises the days of small beginnings? God says, don't, okay, you're in a, you're in a small spot. Just be good with it. Think about Moses for a moment. 40 years educated in Pharaoh's house. 40 years. I mean, if anybody knew leadership, it was him. He was 40 years. He goes to the backside of the desert, gets married, has two kids, and God is all the while working in him in that small place. Never forgot about him. See, it's God's creative plan, his creative pattern. And, you know, when you think about this, is God loves to take our little and touch it in our life. You know that when I was in um, Bible college, for you, that, in case you didn't know, and I'm enlightening you now, especially online, is I am a donut connoisseur. You say, I'm not kidding. I can look at a donut from 20 feet and tell you if it's worth eating or not. You say, why is that? Childhood wounds. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> my, my parents owned six donut shops. I was forced labor. How many of you that your parents owned a business? You know about this. I was forced labor. And so I knew I could tell you a good. And so what happened is, is when I was in Bible college and I got a job is I, I naturally, you're in college in the day, I got a job at night making donuts. And I was used to making donuts for six donut shops. At one shop, six, they would show up in the morning and they would go deliver them to the, to the other five shops. We made them at one. So I got a job at this little donut shop called Sugar Shack. And I walked in and, and I, I looked and I'm like, can you make donuts? I'm like, yes. And they were used to somebody who was like, dink, dink. Dink. I was like, doo -doo -doo -doo. how many of you know what I'm saying? They're like, where'd you learn to make donuts? I'm like, my dad, <laughs> forced labor, childhood wounds. How many of you know? But I would get off work in the morning before going to school. I worked at night, get off at about 6, 6.30 in the morning. And rather than go home and um, lay down, I would go home, take a shower, wash the donut grease off. And then I would go to this duck pond that was by the, by the school that I was at. And I would go to this duck pond and I would, and what I found is, is I would get there and the sun would just be coming up. And what happens is, is in case you didn't know this, and this is enlightening to you, is ducks lay eggs. How many of you are with me on that? And so I looked and I'm like, these babies were like cholesterol bombs. I was like, oh my gosh, it's the blessing of the Lord. And I would get there if, it, if the sun came up and I didn't make it, the ravens would come in and poke the eggs and eat them. So I go around and collect four or five ducks. Some of you are looking at me like, you are weird. Okay, let me just tell you, how many of you remember college days of barely enough? That was me, barely enough. And so I had these, I had 
go collect my duck eggs and I would walk around the duck pond and I would pray until school started. I do my devotions. It was around that duck pond that the Lord first spoke to me and said to me, you're going to be a pastor. And I remember laughing out loud. There's no way, God. Some of you could laugh right now. Because you came to this church and you said, that guy is non-conventional. How many of you know what I'm saying? I was like, I had this idea of a pastor, of a guy that maybe wore a robe because that's what I was raised in. And he would stand behind and he would say things like, brethren and sistren. Let's all stand to our feet. I was not a brethren and a sistren. How many of you know what I'm saying? And, and I remember, but realize it all started at that small place by the duck pond. That's where the Lord spoke to me about Mary and Jill. It was in that small place by the duck pond. And, and in our lives, what we've got to realize is that God is a God that he wants me to be faithful in what I know, right where I'm at, doing the best that I can, knowing that he's got me, he's leading me, and he's directing my life. Can I give you one more? Very quickly, my wife said, yes, that's all I need. Learn from our mistakes. Learn from our mistakes. We all make mistakes, but do we all learn from the mistakes? That's personal right there. To learn from a mistake, there's only thing worse than making a mistake. It's making the same mistake over and over and over in our life. Remember what it said about Moses? He was 40 years with an Egyptian education. But look at what it says about in verse 25 when Moses first showed up. It says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom and the culture of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. He was brought up in the best leadership of his day. He had a plan. He knew how he thought it was going to go. Forty years later, it describes Moses' disposition when he follows God, and this is in Numbers 12.3. It says, now the man Moses was very humble gentle, kind, devoid of self-righteousness, more than any other person who was on the face of the earth. Moses had learned from that back there. Before, he was very much, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, some of us type A, take charge, but understand, know when he's in charge, and don't force your way into something. Be able to stop and say, God, I'm going to do it your way. I like to say it like this, we gotta have guardrails on our life. You say, why do you gotta have guardrails? Because you know the roads that you'll go off the, cr- the cliff. How many of you know what I'm saying? Guardrails in our life could be relationships with people that we will be open and honest with when we're in a tough spot or a difficult spot or we're tempted to do something stupid in our life. Or guardrails can just simply be we'll catch ourselves and we'll stop and we'll say, okay, I realize right now I need to back away from that because if I don't, then I'm going to go over the cliff on that particular area and I've learned from that in my, in my life. And the last one, I'll say it real quick, is see myself as a man manager of everything and an owner of nothing. God's the owner. I'm only the manager. Realize this. If he's the owner, then he carries the weight of it. He carries the weight of it. 
And we just don't, you know what I'm saying. Are you with me today? I know I want to stand up. Everybody stand up. Are you all still with me? Thanks for coming in the midst of the snowstorm. Everybody online, we totally get it. We're grateful you're with us. But I believe that right now in our life that God is saying, I want to build your life. Not create your life, build your life. Create is instant. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's a builder. God's a builder. And right now in our life, no matter what's going on, I believe God wants us to posture our heart that simply says, Lord, I have a reverence for you and I need you in my life to build my life. God, today we thank you for your Holy Spirit and for your grace that is here. Lord, as we've gleaned from Moses' life and realized, Lord, looking at him, some of the mistakes that he made, but realizing that it's never too late, we're never too old, no mistake is final, that you're a good God, you're a faithful God, that you grow us, that you desire, that Lord, today, you're desiring to build our lives. And we say yes to you. Yes to you, Jesus. Thank you.